Um, yeah, just making sure we got what we need there. Great. Um, so welcome to Faith Community Bible Church. If you have not been here before, um, or maybe if you've been here for longer than I have, you may be wondering, uh, who came up with the idea of doing Job in Advent? And, um, and I've been wondering that sometimes too, but wow, God has made some really amazing connections this week as, as I've uh, prepared for, for this sermon. And uh, one thing just, oh, sorry, it is time, I'm getting a wave back there, to release the children, five through fifth grade, yes, please, to Children's Church. So, yes. But we're in, uh, in the book of Job. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. In, in the Red Pew Bibles, that'll be page 417. Um, yeah. But uh, as, as the children leave, just uh, uh, sort of a, a plug for some things we try to put out to help you prepare for and then process uh, the, the, uh, the service. Uh, every Wednesday, an email goes out uh, that has the prepared for Sunday gathered. And it's a document uh, that, uh, that the person uh, uh, who will be giving the sermon puts out. Uh, I actually use it to help me uh, write the sermon, but some, some thoughts about the, the passage we're going to be on and some questions to maybe uh, get your mind thinking and preparing yourself uh, for that. And then uh, on Monday, and this gets posted to the website also, uh, but if you want to be on the email list, that's one way to get it. And then on Wednesday, uh, both on the, through that email and then posted on the uh, website, is uh, discussion questions for, I'm sorry, on Monday, uh, uh, discussion questions for the, for the sermon that was just preached uh, come out, and you can use those to help guide yourself through, through those things. But some people don't know that those go out. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts, be holy and acceptable to you. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, today is the first Sunday in, the, in our season of Advent, uh, the, the time before the coming of Christ, uh, This when we're anticipating Christmas and the, the joy of, of that season. And this week, we lit the candle, uh, and, we, and we heard from Aubrey a, uh, a, a, a reading and then a, a, a prayer of hope. Um, Definition for hope, or one definition uh, I found is this, this expectation uh, for, uh, or, or desire with the expectation of fulfillment or completion, obtainment. Uh, we might ask ourselves, again, how does the book of Job mesh with the theme of hope? How do we get from Job, the suffering of Job, to the anticipation, the hope that Christ's birth brings to us. And it's an especially relevant question when the reading today is from hope and the reading from Job is going to, we're going to hear the lie of the voice of despair. And despair means the absence of hope. And so how do we find some congruity with, with that. And then adding to that, we're going to hear how this voice of despair in two different forms makes an attack on Job's integrity. And over the past couple of weeks, you've heard us talk about the word integrity as it's used here being this, uh, this 
sort of two phases or two faces of that word. One is the ethical sense of, of integrity. And we, we think of blamelessness or, or innocence. But there's also a structural sense to the word of integrity, of wholeness, completeness, fullness, even simplicity. And Job's integrity is found not in his own strength, and his righteousness is not in himself, but it's his righteousness before the sovereign God. And it comes through his fear of and his faith in that sovereign God. Despair, in our, our, our words today, our text today, will attack Job's integrity. It will accuse him of unrighteousness. It will attack his integrity by calling on him to renounce his faith in that sovereign God, to, to renounce his fear of the sovereign God. And by doing so, despair is hoping to remove from Job his only source of hope, that integrity expressed in that fear of and faith in God. And so how can we find any way to mesh this message with that of the Advent message of hope? And if we bring ourselves back to what that first Advent, it wasn't called that then, but that the time before Christ's birth, uh, we, we can see a little bit of that come together. The time leading up to the birth of Christ, the promised Messiah, the, the Savior, the hoped-for Deliverer, many of God's people would have said in that time that hope was in short supply. The, the people had been occupied, or the land had been occupied since the fall of, of Judah. And, 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 and the the nation had been occupied by the Babylonians, and, and then by the Persians, the Macedonians, the Greeks, and, the, and then the, the Romans. There had been a, a brief glimpse of maybe an opportunity for self-role in the, in the Maccabean Revolution 160 years prior, and cool timing. It was the beginning of the season of Hanukkah, which that, that, uh, that celebration sort of, cel or what, that's what that Hanukkah celebrates, is that, that revolution um, with the Maccabees. It had given them a, a, a brief glimpse, but five years later, that had been squashed and squashed hard. For the past 60 years, these, uh, these people had been oppressed, not just by foreign powers, but by puppet governors. And even by their own religious leaders, who Jesus said would, would tie up heavy burdens on their backs and not lift one finger to help them. A Jewish family of that day would have paid taxes to Caesar, and then additional taxes to civil tax collectors, and then additional taxes to, to the temple. Acts against the religious establishment would get one thrown out of the synagogue, and that would throw them out of their support net of community, even their families. And, and acts against the government could get you imprisoned or even crucified. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were exposed to the elements, and they were, were vulnerable to the wolves. But throughout all of this, in the midst of despair, hope remained that the promises of God would be fulfilled, that the, the Messiah, the promised Savior, would come. And so while some gave up all hope, others held fast to it, watching the skies, the heavens, watching the hills, 
crying aloud for salvation because they believed that God's promises were true, that he would answer their cries and that he would come and rescue his people. And then into this world of despair came hope. It didn't come in the time and it didn't come in the way that their people, that God's people expected it. But in the fullness of time, in a baby born in a manger, because God always fulfills his promises. Many of you, I would say most, maybe all of you today are tempted to despair, to give up hope, to renounce your integrity, to curse God and die. Each of us is often attacked by the fundamental claims of despair. There is no hope and things aren't going to get better. And if that is where you are, if you are heavy laden, if you are laboring under the weight of this world, please turn with me to chapter 2 of Job, again, page 417, and consider God's servant Job, a man who under terrible trials, loss, suffering, found hope by clinging to, holding fast to his integrity, his completeness of faith in and fear of the sovereign God. And that's the message I hope you will hear today from our text, that in the face of despair, hold fast to your integrity, which is found in God's sovereignty. So from Job chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. Stop there. We find ourselves again in the setting of the heavenly court. And, and it's very similar to what we saw earlier in chapter 1. During this next court, while Job is still suffering, God is still sovereign, and Satan is still deceived. There's no text between the last scene and this one. It may cause us to think that this happens immediately afterwards. And perhaps it does, but the chapter starts with, again, there was a day, and it implies that some period of time has passed. Maybe some days, maybe weeks, months, maybe years. And Job has been suffering through this time. There is nothing in the Scripture, nothing in the book here, anywhere else in Scripture that would lead us to believe that sometime in the time between Job falling on his face and worshiping God and then this scene that, that God returned that hedge of protection on, on Job, blessed his hands again in his, in his work, and restored his, his, uh, his prosperity. Matter of fact, we, we see otherwise as we continue through the book 
of, of Job. So Job is still suffering. There's no indication that they have somehow picked themselves up, dusted themselves off, and returned to prosperity. But God is still sovereign. And so Job still suffers. God is still sovereign. And the sons of God and Satan himself come and just as before present themselves to that sovereign God. The Lord is the one who asks the questions, and the Lord is the one to whom the answers to those questions are due. He is still the one in control, and yet Satan is still deceived. He's frustrated, perhaps, maybe even humiliated. Remember, he had made this taunting challenge to God beforehand, right? Touch, stretch your hand out on what he has, and he will curse you to his face. And God had put Job into Satan's hand and, and, and has struck down all that Job had. He had lost his, his welfare. He had lost his, his way of living. He had lost his wealth. And he had lost ten children. Satan had done his worst within the limits of what God had set. And Job, instead of cursing God to his face, had fallen on his face and worshiped God. And so, even more than the last heavenly court, Job is God's boast. And you hear how God confronts Satan with this truth. He starts with the same words as last time. Have you considered my servant Job? How there is none like him on the earth, right? But blameless, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then he adds, he still holds fast to his integrity. You, you had me strike him. You said he cursed me to, his face, to my face. And instead, he worships me. And then if you're reading the ESV, it says... Though you, you um, uh, incited me against him, destroy him without reason. You could read that all for naught. What good has it done for you? He still holds fast to his integrity. So in the face of suffering Job, again, he holds fast to this integrity that he has in, he's found in God's sovereignty. And here's where we get a good look at one of Satan's weaknesses. He has an inability to perceive reality. He can't see what's happening from the perspective of heaven. Satan challenged God's sovereignty. God accepted the challenge, but through Job's integrity, God was victorious. If he could see that clearly, Satan would repent before the sovereign Lord God but he's still deceived. And those who are deceived cannot perceive the kingdom of heaven. John 3, 3. They can't perceive God's sovereign majesty. And so they're unable to take hold of the hope that he has in his divine sovereignty. The absence of that hope is the true nature of despair. Despair, we hear in, in Satan's words, says that Job's integrity is cheap. Satan speaks out and he says that, that Job's integrity is, is cheap and selfish as his own. 
Instead of repenting in humility and hope, Satan doubles down. He, he speaks in insolence and desperation. Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out his hand and touch his flesh and bone, and he will curse you to his face. Or to your face. The meaning of that first uh, saying, skin for skin, is of, of debate. But uh, an explanation by Francis Anderson just really struck me. And let me read this. The Satan has accused the Lord of keeping a protective hedge around Job. Here he, Satan, suggests that Job's wealth was like a shield or garment of leather over his human skin. He implies that Job was not hurt by these dreadful calamities because all he cared about was himself. Satan's the accusation here is against Job's integrity in the ethical sense of the word. The second proverb, all that a man has he will give in return for his life, is an accusation against Job integrity, Job's integrity in the structural sense. Robert Alden puts it this way, but what did Job have left to give? Did the Satan hope that Job would give up even his faith in God and his spotless record of piety? As the adversary of godliness and of godly people, that is Satan's purpose in all temptation. There is a reason that Satan is often referred to as the accuser. And he finishes this desperate accusation by saying that now that God has removed this protective hedge around all that Job has, if he will just strike Job's flesh, Job will lose hope. He will let go of his integrity and he will curse God. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Now, the Lord could have responded to, to Satan's insolence in my, one of many ways. He could have rebuked Satan. He could have destroyed Satan. Instead, he pours out his wrath in a way that probably reminds us a bit of, of Romans 1. He, puts, he gives Satan up to his own desires. He puts Job into Satan's hand for suffering with the only limit being his very life. And this sounds awful to us, that, that God would take Job and place him into Satan's hands. But we need to remember that when God puts Job into Satan's hand, he never leaves God's hand either. Because Satan is in God's hand also. So Satan does his worst. He strikes Job with sores, and not the sores like we endure from Mother's Day to Father's Day, right, with the black flies. <laughs> but he says, head to toe with loathsome sores. And if you look at, at loathsome sores, that, that word in the Bible, God normally re reserves those kinds of sores for those who are wicked, those who are deserving of punishment like the Egyptians when they refused to release God's people. And because of this, because people now see 
Job afflicted with those kinds of painful sores, it also attacks not just the integrity of Job's body, but the integrity of Job before others. And so it's no, it should be no mystery to us when we see later that Job's friends start to think that this must be a punishment from God for what Job has done. Because this is what God promises on some of those who sin against him. And then to add further insult to injury, Job's wife, his helpmeet, the one who God has made as his companion, as his helper, specifically for him, also speaks words of despair. It says after, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Unless we have disdain for Job's wife, we need to remember that Job's wife is suffering also. Job's wife has lost her livelihood. Job's wife has lost her wealth. Job's wife has lost ten children. So she is under the attack of despair also. And we know, we could point at Job's wife, but we know that when we are suffering, we also speak out in despair as well. And so she sees her husband, once the greatest person in the East, now suffering from loathsome sores, scraping himself with pottery and sitting in ashes. So I read her words not with the tone of Satan's insolence, but instead the despair of brokenness. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. She's lost hope. Here, the voice of despair is saying that, that to hold fast your integrity, to believe somehow in your hope of wholeness before God is foolish. He has abandoned you. All is lost. Stop clinging to hope. Just, just die. And again, this makes sense when we see Job suffering from the perspective of the world and not from the perspective of heaven. By the grace and mercies of, of God, though, Job still holds fast to his integrity. He says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, by the grace of God, by his mercies, he is able to hold fast to his integrity. Job must rebuke the call of despair, the call to curse God. But instead of calling her character into question, he speaks to her words. He criticizes her words as foolish. I can almost hear him saying, dear wife, this isn't like you. And he emphasizes that they are still experiencing this together. He doesn't say I, he says we. Shall we receive good from God? And, not, and shall we not receive evil? Your Bible may translate that last word, adversity, or trouble, or hardship. 
Job continues to find hope in, in his integrity, laying himself bare before God in the face of the words of despair, just as David did in the face of words of despair. Saul's accusations, he, he cry, cries out in Psalm 7, Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is guilt in my hands. He says, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Simultaneously, Job acknowledges that all of God's provisions are to be received with gratefulness, good and and evil, right? Prosperity, adversity, well-being and illness, plenty and want, encouragement, and discipline. I referred to this a few weeks ago, but David Platt in his sermon, his overview of the book of Job, he he tells us to to look on Job's plight from the perspective of heaven instead of that of earth. And he says we have a privilege of seeing it from heaven's perspective because we have what Job didn't. We have the whole story here in Scripture. But if we look at it from heaven's perspective, we will see thousands and thousands of the heavenly host gathered around watching to see as, as, as if as Job accuses or as, as Satan accuses Job of false integrity and false worship. And Satan accuses God of buying the worship from Job. And then Satan strikes Job with, with these calamities. And then as we saw in the, in the last verses from, from last week, instead of Job cursing God, he worships God. And again, it happens again. And, and instead of Job cursing God, he speaks truth about God. And thousands upon thousands of hands raise up in the air. And thousands of thousands of voices say, worthy is the God of Job. And Satan flees from his presence. As a matter of fact, this is the last time we will see Satan in the book of Job. Forty more chapters to go. And Satan never shows his face again. In the face of adversity, suffering, and pain, and even in the face of despair, Job has held fast to his integrity that he has in God's sovereignty. Having been accused of having a conditional faith, that will crumble and give in to the temptation to curse God with his lips. Job instead holds fast to that integrity. Satan is humiliated once again, and he flees from God's presence. So how do we apply that? Friends, this is a desperate world. And in the perspective, or from the perspective of the world, despair makes a lot of sense. We are two years into a medical crisis that has overcome the best medical minds, skills, and resources ever assembled. We're halfway through the Greek alphabet. 76 years after the United Nations was chartered to, among other purposes, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, it's from their charter. We currently have a world that is ravaged by over 50 armed conflicts, state-level conflicts, and 70-plus non-state-level conflicts. And, of course, a lot more injustice beyond that. We produce more food today 
than we ever have in all of history. And we have millions upon millions of people suffering from hunger and starvation. We're in a time where we pride ourselves in the advances of reason, but we can't even talk across the Thanksgiving table reasonably. We've got division in our world, in our nation, in our communities, and even churches, and even our families. We know that the suffering of the world reaches much deeper and broader than that. Within just the walls of this building today, there are countless instances of suffering in relations, in, in health, finances, housing, emotional suffering, and the death of loved ones. With the perspective of the world, from where will we find hope? To what integrity, what wholeness and completion will we cling to in the hope that what is broken will somehow be restored? Some will tell us to look towards our institutions of government, of, of industry, health, education, science, finance, transportation, agriculture, you name it. But if we look there, we'll find not integrity, but more corruption and more brokenness. Others encourage us to look inside, to trust ourselves. But we know that if we look inside ourselves, we'll also find more corruption and brokenness. There is no real hope in any of these sources. And so from the perspective of the world, despair makes a lot of sense. In fact, the world cries out, if you read any of the news or hear any of the news, the world is crying out in despair against itself, and rightly so. And the world is also crying out in despair against God. When we try to find a heavenly perspective, that voice of despair is there also. It is there again, just like it was with David. He's, he, he, he writes in Psalm 3 that people are saying of him, there is no salvation for him in God. This world mocked Jesus on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God save him if he desires him. In the face of such despair, the faithful heart that clings to the integrity of faith in the sovereign God must cry out, not against God, but toward God. It may ask, but you, O Lord, how long? Why do you, the God of mercy, not relieve this suffering? Why do you, the God of justice, not crush this enemy? Why do you, the God of all healing, not heal this disease? Where are you, the God who is omnipresent, when I feel so all alone? And if you've asked these questions, you are in good company. And over the next weeks, you are going to hear Job ask each of these questions. And if you read through the book of Psalms, you will hear each of these questions asked many times. Jesus himself cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's what gives us hope. Even when we are in the face of these terrible terribly difficult questions. Our sovereign God is the God, not only the God who hears our cries, He is not only the God who answers our cries, but He is the God who makes promises. If you got our uh, Prepare for Sunday Gathered this week, there was a podcast from Alistair Groves referenced, and he says this, 
It is very strange that God would make promises to us. That's a very odd thing for a sovereign God to do. The God who holds all of history in his hands, who is going to make all things go the way that he chooses for them to go, who holds every last moment and every last atom utterly under his control, why does he bother giving anyone any promises ever at all? He can just make things happen. So whether he promises it or not, it's utter certainty that he will do it and we need not know. Yet God makes promises. Rose argues that one of the reasons is found in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, where he says that we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Because for we who have trusted in Christ, integrity comes not from our righteousness, but from His. Our hope lies not, in, or our hope lies in the promises He has set before us. And so when the voices of the world speak out to us in despair, we can hold fast to our integrity that we find in God's sovereignty by considering His promises. And here are some of them. To our cries of repentance, He promises salvation, transformation, renewal, renewal and purpose to those who repent from their sins and put their trust in him. To our cries of loneliness, he promises his presence. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. To our cries for relief, he promises comfort for our afflictions, mercy and grace to help in time of need. To our cries of weariness, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To our cries of powerlessness, he promises the presence and the power of his Holy Spirit. And to our cries of help, he promises to put us among a body of believers so that it's not I, but we who face these problems together and can com comfort each other with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Each of these promises stands on the foundation of the best promise of all that even we who have sought our own ways, even though we've turned away from him to pursue our own desires, even though we have separated ourselves from the love, favor, and protection of our sovereign God, and even though we have put ourselves on a path to death and destruction that we can't take ourselves off of, that there's nothing in our power to save our lives God has heard our cries. And he has answered them in a way that we never would have planned, we never would have chosen, we never would have expected. In a baby born in a manger. God incarnate. God with us. Who lived a sinless life, who grew up to teach and make disciples. And, and for the joy that was set before him would endure the cross and by resurrection conquer the grave through God's power. And the promises, gives us promises that if we will follow him, he will not only forgive our sins, but transform our lives. 
And so when Satan says, all that a man has, he will give in return for his life, you heard from the scripture later, what can a man give in return for his soul? And Christ says, I will give my life for your soul. So having laid hold of that promise as we endure our own suffering, as we cry out to him with our sorrows, he promises that things will get better. Maybe not now. Maybe not in this life. Probably not in our timing and most assuredly not in a way we expect or the path we would choose. Things will get better. They will be set straight. We will be rescued. We will be brought into his presence. And one day, God will dwell with us and we with him. And he will be our God. We will be his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And God says he will do it. And if God says he will do it, it will happen. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And if you have questions about what that means, please talk to me, the person that brought you here, any one of us. and We'd love to speak to you about that. Let's pray before... Uh, two of our young folks come up here to lead us in a final song. Lord, this world cries out in despair, and those accusations hurt. We are tempted to lose hope, and Lord, forgive us for when we do. But Lord, you are sovereign, and what you say you will do you will do. You give and take away. You bring well-being and calamity. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.